Our scripture reading this morning of the chapters we're covering is going to be found in Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 through chapter 13, verse 3. I'm confident that God loves me even if I can't pronounce Hebrew names this morning. Okay? So starting in chapter 12, I got an amen. Verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem, to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of Nedophatites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaba. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up into the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south of the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshaniah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, and Shemaniah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah the son of Jonathan, and Shemaniah, and son of Mataniah, son of Medeiah, son of Zarkar, and son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaniah, Azrael, Melaliah, Gilaliah, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshaniah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananil, and the tower of Hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priest, Elakam, Messaniah, Menanim, Micaiah, Eloniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Masaniah, Shemaniah, Elazar, Uzzah, Jehanonan, Machanachah, Elam, and Azar. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day were appointed over the storerooms. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms. The contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes together into them the portions required by the law for the priest and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. 
As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in our last few weeks of the book of Nehemiah. We got this week and next week, and then we'll be finished with this book, and it it wouldn't end rightly if we didn't have long lists of names in front of us. We're actually starting in in chapter 11 this morning, so you can turn back a few pages to chapter 11. But I wonder if you've ever been a part of a ribbon-cutting ceremony. Maybe to start a business, or if there's some sort of, if you, we're not close to water, but if you've been around a, a ship that's like taking a maiden voyage, and you're cutting the, the red tape to set it off on its sailing, or, or maybe you've been at a dedication of a building. When I was in school and in seminary, we had this, uh, over the winter, had a problem in one of the buildings, one of the main classrooms that we met in, and then all of a sudden there's, there's backhoes there, and they're just tearing up everywhere where students would walk and would go to back and forth to classes, and it was all of a sudden just this major construction project, and they were working to make sure they got something set, but then, you know, as you know, with old buildings, there's like, oh, there's a thousand extra problems that we added onto it, so it became a a fairly large construction project right in the middle of campus, and they they finished a, a few months later in the spring, and they were having this big event to celebrate the dedication of this because there was so much money and time put into this they felt like man we got to set aside some time to celebrate it on top of that someone had generously donated money so they could name this plaza became known as a certain plaza so that they could be recognized as well so we have this great this big event that's planned so that everyone can see that all the work is now done and we are open and we want to dedicate this to to the students to have to use for their good and i went to this dedication ceremony because they were giving out free cake It was a large cake, and there was plenty for all, and it was great. There had been a lot leading up to that cake, and all sorts of work, stuff that I didn't even know about. I got to go in on the end of it and get the cake, get the the good part of it, but to get it open and usable and enjoyable for people to, to actually get it to dedicate to the place where we could use it for the good of the students, there was a lot leading up to that. And when we go to Nehemiah, they've been building this wall, and there's a lot leading up to the building of the wall, and now we're at the place where they're going to dedicate the wall, and there's been a lot of leading up to the finishing of the wall and to the dedication of it. And chapters 11, 12, and the very first of 13 show the the Jews dedicating the wall, but also dedicating themselves again to the Lord. In in a sense, they they give us a picture of what it looks like to, to give all of our lives, to spend ourselves for the glory of God. So they've come a long way. They've come from being slaves and exiles in Babylon to to being freed and brought back into the promised land. The Lord had stirred this up. The Lord had provided for this and had sovereignly seen them from Babylon all the way into the promised land. They have come from, from getting into the promised land and working on their paneled homes. You remember how they kind of settled in and like, let's get some panels on our houses? To, to moving to finishing the temple of God and making sure that was a priority for them. So they went from a destroyed temple to paneled homes to the temple being completed. They, they started working on Jerusalem and the walls and they, they moved from opposition and fear and stifling of their work to, to working hard with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other and trusting in the Lord to, to keep them safe. They went from the, the rubble all around the city to the walls actually being built. They, they went to Jerusalem kind of being restored to a, a, some sense of normal order and then they moved to even restoring themselves through the reading of the law, the confessing of sins, the, the covenant commitment that they made in chapter 10. But but there's more to be done. You might remember that we kind of put a pause in this in chapter 7, but Nehemiah raised an issue in chapter 7. Verse 4 said the city, Jerusalem, was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and none of the houses had been rebuilt. And the people that are to repopulate that city mattered to Nehemiah, mattered to the Jews. So chapter 7 is another list. Who's to repopulate the city that's vast and large and that should have people in it? It should be the, the, the people of God, the, the people that God had made specific promises to. And so they give a list. Here are some people that could repopulate the city. But the right people were to fill this great city for the glory of God. And that's what they tend to in chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people, they lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people, they blessed all the men 
who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So you have some that offer themselves freely and willingly to relocate into this uh, city, into the holy city of Jerusalem. Uh, others, they see a need and they, they go for it. And others have to cast lots to see who would go. And it's understandable why not many would be eager to live in the city. You remember in chapter 7, verse 4, not many houses have been built. It's a place that probably needs a lot of work. It's a place that's surrounded by other things, like maybe you had some ties in agriculture and you had a, a field already planted. You had your house already established outside of the city because the city wasn't built when you got there. The, the reminiscing of, of Jerusalem of old maybe wouldn't have been something that was real for many people. They, they had come from Babylon. They had come from maybe even someplace around Jerusalem before it was rebuilt. So the, the greatness of the city may not have appealed to them. And they had land and and there's rubble out there in Jerusalem, and, and, and maybe it wouldn't have been something that they would have wanted to do, and so they cast lots. And one out of ten is going to live in Jerusalem along with the, some of the leaders that live there. And, and my guess is that when you hear that, that they had to cast lots, and that one out of ten is, is going to move into the city, that that sounds a little bit unfair to you. Perhaps a little bit impractical. Like you're asking families to, to uproot from wherever they are outside the city and to move into the city. Perhaps it even sounds harsh. And I think that if we think that way, it exposes our misunderstanding of people's relationship to God and, and, and perhaps our relationship to God and the Jews' relationship to God. You see, God has rights over all people. He especially has rights over his own people. He has rights over all in general as their creator, as their creator, the one that made them, the one that made where they live. He has the right to command and demand from us what he wills. He's the one who created us. We're his. Specifically, he has rights over his people, not just as their creator, but as their redeemer. God's people are doubly his. The, the Jews are those who were created by God, chosen by God, loved by God, not because they were great, but because he set his love and affection on them and redeemed by God. He is the one who brought them out of slavery to the Egyptians. He is the one that put them into the promised land, planted them down there, moving their enemies out of the way in front of them. God is the one that redeemed them. He is the one that had sent them into exile because of their sin and rebellion against God, and he's the one that again redeemed them, brought them back out of their exile, back into the promised land. He has rights over his people to command of them what he wills by being their creator and by being their redeemer. And the same is true for God's people today. Today, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you are God's by both creation and redemption, that he made us and redeemed us. We've been bought, if we're in Christ, at a price, and we now belong to him. It's the best kind of belonging there is. He is the one who laid down his life so that we could belong, and so this is the one we want to belong to. One that would willingly sacrifice himself for us is one that you'd want to belong to. And what we do then as those who have been redeemed who belong with God, is that now we, we offer up to God to, to put us anywhere. He has the right to place us on the map where he chooses. He has the right to deal with us as he pleases because we're doubly his by creation and redemption. And this isn't unfair. We don't think it's harsh. It's not a bad thing. We actually really want to embrace it because this is a good and faithful, trustworthy God whose hand is upon us. We want him to lead us where he wants. We were bought at a price. We belong to him. We want to give him everything. There's a missionary uh, named John Patton. He was a Scottish missionary, and he was called the missionary to the cannibals. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. These were islands known for being cannibalistic. And he says of someone who was kind of pushing back against him when he was getting ready to leave and depart to these islands, he says, Among many who sought to deter me was a dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! That's a pretty compelling argument. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, and now he's infamous, right? He's named, right? Could have just, he, he left him general early on. There was this one guy, this one Christian gentleman. Now it's Mr. Dixon. We know who it is. All right, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. 
here's a man who knows who he belongs to, and he doesn't care where he's put on the map. God can do with him as he chooses. If he wants to send him to an island of cannibals, he's certainly happy with that. Prospect of being eaten by worms or eaten by cannibals, he's fine with both because he belongs to God. And this is what the people of God are to be. Offering up our lives freely to to this one who has bought us, who's redeemed us. We belong wholly to him. And we want to bring that redeemer, that creator, glory. And so we say, here I am. You put me on the map where you choose. If that's in Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem, cannibals here to be buried in the grave, slow death, eaten by worms, that's fine too. If Jesus is our redeemer, we get the privilege of responding to his grace and offering up ourselves to him to do with us as he chooses. He has that right over us. Romans 12.1 reminds us, in, in light and in view of the great mercies of God, what are we to do? Offer up our lives as a living sacrifice. That means we belong to Him, that we're to be used at His disposal as He chooses. And this offering, he says, is pleasing or acceptable to God. It's our spiritual act of worship, and, and being pleasing and acceptable to God is to be our aim. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, like whether we're at home or away from the body, we we make it our aim. Here's his aim to please God. That's the aim. That's the aim of those who belong to God. How can I please him? It's not harsh or or difficult for him to move us away somewhere. We we want to please him. If he wants it, we should want it as well. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, and whatever we do, we want to to do it to the honor and the, the glory of God. If you are in Christ, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to your Redeemer. You now get the the great privilege of responding to that grace and that mercy by offering up your life wholly to Him to bring Him pleasure, to please Him, to honor and glorify Him. And with that offering, God can place us where he chooses, on the map, wherever he wants. He can deal with us as he pleases. We're his. And in a sense, that's what Israel's doing. The the casting of lots is to say, who do you want? And where do you want them? And the language of offering is especially being used in chapter 11. You notice the word bring in chapter 11, verse 1. There's the same kind of language that we saw in chapter 10. In verse 34, they're bringing offerings. Verse 35, they're bringing more offerings. I mean, there's several brings. Verse 36, they're bringing offerings. There's all these offerings, this bringing that they're doing in chapter 10. It's a a tithing, an offering, a freely giving of something. And now, in a sense, in chapter 11, we move to to tithing families. Like, they're, they're now being tithed. Some willingly relocate, and they're blessed because Jerusalem is, chapter 11, verse 1, a holy city, a place that you should desire to be, to repopulate. But you see the text, it looks at all of this, and it says the people as a whole here are bringing this. They, they together are offering one out of ten. They together are one out of ten going to this city. Some are going by lot, others are volunteering. Many are going to remain in the towns, but, but they're all doing it unto the Lord. They're all bringing this to the Lord. In other words, the people of God are either offering or going because this is the holy city. This is what God wants. This is what would bring pleasure to God. And so they're, they're willing to say, well, bring whatever you want us to bring to, to do what needs to be done. But these families, no, this isn't a move that's going to bring them comfort. Safety first, right? Like this, this is going to be a hard move. Moving from your homes and uprooting and going into the city. But what they're doing is they're putting the vision of Jerusalem as a holy city first over their own vision of their own paneled homes, over their own vision of, of their own families. It's a move that puts the glory of Jerusalem, the glory of the God of Jerusalem above their own selfish ambitions. And says, do with us what you will. We got to go to a, a pastor's retreat this last week, and we met a couple, and I said, well, where are you from? They're from Wisconsin. I said, well, how long have you been there? And he said, I'll let my wife answer, and she says, eight winters. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> you don't like winter there. It must be cold. I imagine that's not fun. They were from Florida and South Carolina, and they'd been there for eight winters. So I was like, well, why'd you go to Wisconsin? <laughs> to plant a church. And it was just that simple, right? Because that's what God's people do. Right? Why are you there? For the glory of Christ. Hey, we, eight winners, that's whatever. We, we make it our aim to please God. 
All right, we, we go where God wants us to go, and this is what God's people should be known for, and that's what we should be about in noticeable ways. We should be notoriously people who seek God's glory first over our own comfort, our own safety, our own protection, over our own selfish ambition so that he can receive honor and glory. So do we do that? Do we notoriously make it our aim to please God? No matter the temporal sacrifice on our end, I mean, the, the prospects of the end for all of us is the same. If we're in Christ, we're going to leave a hole in the ground one day because he's going to raise us up. Whether we're eaten by worms or destroyed in another way, we're his. And so we want to make it our aim to notoriously make it our aim to please God. And that's what Israel's doing here. They're, they're making it their aim to do what God wants them to do. They're, they're repopulating the city because this is God's holy city. Chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 18 Think of Jerusalem, describe Jerusalem as a holy city. This is for God's glory. People are needed to repopulate it. And guess what? God provides the people. Chapter 11, verse 3, through the rest of the chapter, is going to give us a list of people. And this list reminds us that God is providing exactly what he wants to happen in Jerusalem. He wants people. Now, there's a similar pattern to this list in chapter 11 as the list we've seen before. There's a division between just normal Israelites, normal Jews, and priests, and Levites, and temple servants. And we're not going to read through the list of names, but every name in chapter 11, verse 3 through 23, reminds us of God's faithfulness. In Psalm 136, there's this verse, and there's this refrain in every verse, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And so it's like it's, it's made to be to spoken out loud that these people would respond each time. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And so at each name, we could repeat, God is faithful. So maybe you should do that this afternoon. Read through the list of names as best as you can. And, and every name, remind yourself, God is faithful. God has kept this person. He keeps his promises. He shows his covenant faithfulness. Every single name is another layer reminding us that God has provided exactly what he's needed. And he's provided with people. You might remember when Abraham made, had this covenant with God, God cut a covenant with him. And there was a vision where there were animals split in two, and Abraham is seeing this vision, and the torch, this is kind of a representation of God, symbolic of God, walks through the divided animals. Not Abraham, he watches this happen. And this is the covenant that he says. God speaks the covenant again when he does this and says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to give you offspring, and they're going to bless all the nations of the earth. God promised to do that through a specific person, through his offspring, through a people. And what does that people do? They rebel against that God. They sin against that God. And yet still, God is faithful to keep that covenant because he was the only one that walked through the split animals. He's saying in that when most people, you'd both walk through, both parties of the covenant would walk through, God walked through. He's saying, I'm keeping this covenant. I alone will keep it. You might fail, but I'm going to keep both ends of the bargain. I'm going to make sure that the nations are blessed. It's going to be through your offspring. That's how it's going to happen. And what is happening here? People have been sinful. They had to be exiled just as God had promised, but he brought them back. And they're numerous now because he is the one that's keeping the covenant. They did not do this. this is, these names are sheer grace that God would keep this people. He's keeping his promises. And every name reminds us that we have this faithful God. And don't God's people need to be constantly reminded of his faithfulness? We are constantly reminded as we read the scripture of how people are not faithful. And so when we read each name, we need to be reminded God is faithful. He keeps his promises down to family lines. That's how much he cares about it. We need to be reminded over and over again of God's faithfulness. Even as Paul says to, second in, in, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says that if we are faithless, that's our story. That's the story of Israel. What happens? He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This people is a people provided because God kept them. A specific people he kept, he preserved them, and he brought them from Babylon to the promised land. But not only did he keep a people to repopulate the city, he also wants to repopulate the promised land. Look in verse 25 of chapter 11. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and Dibon and its villages, and Jechabazil and its villages, and Jeshua, and Molada, and Beth Pellet, and Hazar Shual, and Beersheba and its villages, and Ziklag, and Mechoniah and its villages, and in Ramon, 
in Zorah, in Jarmuth, in Zenoah, Adullam, and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazer, Ramah, Gatam, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the valley of craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites and Judah were assigned to Benjamin. So there's people populating the land as well. So we have this list of names, and then we have all these people that are in villages outside of Jerusalem. And you remember in verse 36, there's, there's also this division of Levites that are out there in these villages. It reminds us now that we have the city, Jerusalem, that's being repopulated, but also the promised land is populated, and it's, this city is now surrounded by a worshiping community as well. It's not just the city that's to be worshiping. They have a worshiping community around them. So we follow up the list in chapter 11 with another list in chapter 12, a list of priests and Levites. This list is a list from Zerubbabel, who first brought back the returnees, who was the one that led them in the beginning after the the edict from Cyrus, to Nehemiah, to up to the point that he's writing this. In other words, there's a continuous line of priests and Levites. And I loved this quote from one commentator. I thought it was very helpful. And even if it didn't fit, I'd still want to read it just because we need it. Continuity is, again, a major interest here, right? So it, it may not matter to us that there are priests and Levites that came, that were kept in Babylon, that came with Zerubbabel, and that that line has been kept and in cont- continuity up until Nehemiah, but it mattered to them. But here's what he says. Unexciting as the first half of the chapter is, it has a point to make by its refusal to treat bygone generations as of no further interest. This is what our kind of instinct would be to do. Like, we want to stress the present and forget about bygone generations. He says, we don't do that right here. That doesn't fit this way. And if history writing inevitably distorts reality by its concentration on outstanding people and on the forces of change, here is something to redress the balance. This list of names of ordinary priests and Levites that are in this continuous line are ordinary provision of normal people all by the hand of the Lord. This is a list that's needed to be faithful to the commitment. You remember chapter 10, verse 39, they made a commitment, and their commitment was to make sure that they kept, kept up with the house of the God. God. Chapter 10, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. You need priests and Levites in order to make that a, pos- a reality to honor God rightly, to walk in the law, to figure out how to do these things. You need your priests and Levites there to help you walk in this right covenant relationship with God, to rightly keep the law. And here they are, this faithful line that God has sustained this entire time. So this list shows us that God not only provided for the people to repopulate the city and the land, but them to continue to be a worshiping people in right relationship with him should they respond to and listen to his wall or to his law. So here they are, restored people in the promised land. We've gone through chapter 11 and most of chapter 12 now. And they are a people ready to be restored with worship, and they have restored walls. And so the most pressing matters, they have taken care of. They have read the law. They have fasted. They've kept some celebrations that were at the time of their finishing of the wall. And now it's time to celebrate, to, to cut the red ribbon on the finished wall. Chapter 12, verse 27 is where we pick up. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, and with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Again, God had laid on Nehemiah's heart this desire to rebuild the walls. And here we see the fruition of what God had laid on his heart, that all that they've gone through has led them to this point, this ordinary and extraordinary means that God has used to provide for this wall to be completed, and now they're, they're dedicating it. Now, like the completion of the temple, the finishing of the wall is celebrated with great joy. Verse 28, the, the sons of the singers, they gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Natophathites, and also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmabeth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites, they purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Chapter 11, verse 1 and 18 remind us of Jerusalem. This is a holy city of a holy God, and so they purify everything. People, 
gates, walls. It wasn't enough that they outwardly had finished the wall. They're going to purify it as well. And so they purify it. More was needed. And this was a ritual purification needed to, to, to dedicate it to this holy God in this holy city. And then what they do in verses 31 through 42 is they start marching. They march around the wall. It's a substantial building that they would have to have space to be able to march literally on top of the wall. But that's what they do. They start marching. In verse 31, there's one group that goes south along the wall. And verse 38, there's another group that goes north along the wall. So they're kind of encircling this in two different groups. And you can see that as they go, they're giving great thanks. Verse 27 reminds us, right? They're, they have thanksgivings and singing. Verse 31, there was those that were appointed, two great choirs, that gave thanks. Verse 38, all the headings here. This other choir who gave thanks. Verse 40, both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. I mean, all through, you see this note as they're dedicating the wall, this note of thanksgiving. They didn't march around the wall in order to look at their job well done. They marched around the wall as a procession of thanksgiving for what the Lord had done. Now remember, Jerusalem, and this is a holy city. We've read this several times, Psalm 48. It says, verse 12, walk about Zion. Go around her number, number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever, and he will guide us forever. In a sense, that's what they're doing here. They're going around and they're reminding one another, this is our God, that he could do something like this, that out of a, a, a little people with great opposition, with all sorts of rubble around us, out of all that, God could build this wall. And so they round the wall that everyone would know that such is their God, that he could accomplish this in and through them. They go as a procession to give thanks to God for what he's done. And as they're going, I'm guessing they might have recalled what they had faced. They might recalled what, well, that's where we had opposition. That's where I first heard that rumor that Sambalat was, was, was throwing at us. That's where I had to carry my trowel, and that's where I first put on my sword as well to be ready. Or that's where I had heard that Nehemiah wasn't a good leader, but I knew I couldn't believe that because that was from these guys on the outside. And so as they go, they're reminding themselves likely of, of what God had done and of how they had stood in the midst of all that opposition. And what, looking what, at what God had done and giving thanks for it, as the note of this passage would say, leads them to great joy. And so they, they lead this procession all the way to the temple, and that's where we pick up in verse 43 of chapter 12. And they get at the temple, and they offer great sacrifices that day, and rejoice, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children, they also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. When Israel met at the foundation of the temple, when they finished the foundation of the temple in Ezra chapter 3, do you remember what happened? Look back in Ezra chapter 3, verse 11. They finished the foundation of the temple, and they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks. So there is a note of thanksgiving. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people, they shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept out loud with a voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And there was a mixed sound, weeping, mourning, lamenting, and rejoicing. And they couldn't figure out which was which. They were both kind of going on at the same time. When we move to chapter 12 of Nehemiah, as they walk around these walls, there's no more mixed sound. There's one sound. Three verbs. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Two nouns. Rejoice and rejoice. Right? Joy and joy. Now, the, the, the easy winning note is the note of joy. It is clear. It wins the day. And that, this is what noticing the work of God will do. Noticing the work of God's grace and giving thanks to Him, even verbally, out loud, giving thanks to Him, singing to Him, it will lead God's people to great joy. How could it not? You look at what God has done. How much grace has He given? 
And if you start to just notice, it leads you to joy because this is all something we've just received. How much has He done if we would just stop and notice? And we should notice. Psalm 100, 103 verse 2 says, forget not all His benefits. All. All is going to take some intentionality. Not only should we notice, but we should give thanks. Psalm 100 verse 4 says you need to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Or we could look to the New Testament and we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 18 that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. That's the will of God for us in Christ Jesus, that we always be giving thanks. So do we notice and take time to notice what God has done? To, to in a sense, to march on the walls of our lives and to look at the sheer grace of God that's everywhere and thank him for it. Part of what we do in corporate worship is that. At least we hope that's part of it. That we need to look around and, and not at the physical walls, although we can give thanks for the grace of God even in the physical walls. We can look around at the walls of people He has built as He is building Himself a temple to be unto His glory and His namesake. We are for His glory. And we look around and we think, well, there's one that God has won. There's one that God has redeemed. And we look around, we're reminding of what God has built just in the people themselves. We ought to do this. And we, we hear and respond to the truths of the gospel that here's what God has done that we need to celebrate and remind each other of over and over and over again. And so corporate worship, we hope, is at least part of this, recounting some of the benefits of God so that we can enter his gates with thanksgiving and give thanks in all circumstances. We need to do this individually as well. Take stock. I don't know, thankful journal, whatever you want. All his benefits as something we're to remember. That takes intentionality. So maybe this afternoon you need to stop and you need to walk around the walls of your life in some way, maybe physically, maybe in your mind. You're, you're building a, a, a palace in your mind that you're walking on and you're reminding yourselves of the benefits of God and you're thanking him for it. I think this leads to joy. Joy seems a little bit wild, doesn't it? Slippery, kind of hard to grab hold of, something that seems to, to come and go. Let's just say this, that, that joy is a lot easier to grab a hold of when we intentionally look at God and what he's done, and we thank him for his work. Intentional thankfulness is the kind of climate that joy likes. It's the, it's the climate that joy grows best in. And so that might seem slippery and wild, like, man, I hope I get a glimpse of joy sometime. Like, Let's lay the foundation rightly. Let's, let's get the climate right. And the climate is, that is right for joy is this intentional thankfulness before the Lord that says, let's look at what God has done. And when you start turning to what God has done and thanking Him for it, all of a sudden, joy comes around a lot more often. Not quite as wild and slippery because when we turn to God, it turns us to the source of our joy. It's in Him. Not in the circumstances around us primarily, but it's in Him. And when we turn to him and give thanks to him, here comes the source of our joy that we're looking at and joy itself. Now, I think that as they walked around this, they didn't ignore the hard stuff. Now, I wonder again, like if we think about joy, it's, it's pretty slippery and it's easy to say for these, these Jews who the wall is now finished and they get to walk around and it's, it's great because they have the victory. They, they've gotten done what God had wanted them to get done. But, but what about all the hard stuff? I, I couldn't have joy in the midst of my life. And I would say that I think this thankfulness that they have probably didn't ignore the hard stuff. When, when they probably remembered the difficult times. Remember how Tobiah was yelling at us over there? Remember how they taunted us that the way I was building wasn't even good enough for a fox to, to hold a fox? Like, they would have remembered. Hey, remember, that was right outside my house that I was building, and I was scared, and it was in the middle of the night, and we were supposed to hold our swords. And remember how tired we were? They would have remembered some of the difficulty. But as they walked, how could they help but remember that God had seen them through it? He'd provided for them, that he had sustained them in the midst of all their opposition, of all their troubles, of all their pains. Now, there might be some pains and difficulties and opposition that are blocking your thankfulness and joy, but guess what? We get to look again. Go around the walls, start taking stock, look again, see if you can't be intentional with what God has done in your life. And we know through passages like this, we can even look here. This is part of the wall God is putting in front of us to say, Look at who I am. Look at what I have done for my people. 
This is my character. This is my nature. God is this faithful God. He's gracious. In other words, even in the midst of our pain and struggles and opposition that we might face, we can know that this God is trustworthy. In the midst of our pain, and maybe even with our pain, we can still give thanks to Him. We don't have to ignore that stuff. We can just still be intentional with our thankfulness and see if the Lord doesn't bring us joy in the midst of hard things. A once-exiled people, Israel here, their joy is heard by all. Think of that. A ragged group of people that were in exile, that have been returned to the promised land, they're not prospering in many ways, but their joy is heard far away. That could be our story too, because this is who God is. He takes the things that are negative and he, and he uses them for our good. Didn't he say that here? That they, they thought they were going to bring harm upon them and all this opposition, and yet Nehemiah shows us that it all worked for their good. That God even turned that for their good. That could be our story too, because that's who God is. That's what he does with his people. We know that all those who are in Christ, no matter what has worked to harm us, we know that ultimately it, it won't succeed because our victory is tied to the victory of our Savior. And we're just saying, He's, he's risen. And we're as secure eternally as He is risen. The once exiled people now has this great joy. They would sing laments on the way to Babylon. How could we remember Jerusalem? And here they are singing for joy. Now, Nehemiah, you've got to appreciate him. Being the leader he is, he strikes while the iron is hot. Right? There's momentum here with the people. They're singing, they're thankful. Let's get something done. And he leads them into more consecration. Look in verse 44. The men were appointed to the storerooms, over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoice over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. A ragged group of returned exiles, they've retained and regained some of the remnants of their former glory, even kind of reminiscing about, well, man, this was kind of like when King David was around. We were kind of at our pinnacle. They are making sure that they make provision for them to be a worshiping people. They are setting out, again, to fulfill their commitment of chapter 10, verse 39, to not neglect the house of God, to make sure that they are a worshiping people. And I love how Nehemiah just kind of grabs all of them here. is like, let's do this. Let's set this all up. While you're happy, while we're, we're giving thanks, we're remembering who God is, Let's make sure that we take care of being a worshiping people for the long run. And so they set apart offerings and priests and Levites. And they also look at themselves as set apart. We see that in chapter 13. On the first day, again, they're continuing. They're, they're riding the wave of momentum. They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned, as he does, turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now they're probably reading from Deuteronomy chapter 23 here, but they're not being arrogant. That's what it sounds like. Like we're going to separate ourselves from all these other people so that we're not tainted by them. This isn't arrogance. This is humility. This is knowing their own sinful nature, knowing their need as the specific people of God to be consecrated, to dedicated wholly to their Lord. The more dedicated the people of God are to their God, the more they'll actually be a blessing to those nations that they've been put in the middle of. That's what God had wanted for them. Be a light to the nations. Bless all the nations of the earth. That was God's desire. And so how do they do that? The best way is to be a holy people. And they needed to be separate from not just the people of the land, but from their gods as well. Letting the nations corrupt their worship or draw them away helps nobody. And that's what happens when you start being infiltrated by these nations. The Ammonites, the Moabites, they were enemies of God, corruptors of the worship of God, enemies to God and the people of God. Remember Tobiah? Ammonite. That's, that's an example for us in Nehemiah and Ezra. Tobiah was an Ammonite. Here's what he does. He tries to work against the people of God, against the plans of God, against the goodness of God. 
And so part of this wall was ensuring that Israel could have this distinct identity, wholly devoted unto the Lord. This is something they needed, not to keep out the stain of other nations. Other nations can be included. You remember Ruth? They, they want to be a light to other nations. They want to include them. It wasn't to keep out the stain of other nations. It was to keep out the stain of idolatry that had so often blotted their history full. They were to be a people that were to worship the Lord only. But notice something else that's going on here. In Ezra chapter 9 and 10, we had this problem of intermarrying of people that were supposed to be part of the people of God and worshiping God, and people of the land that were worshiping other gods, marrying. And they said, let's, let's not do that because that always drags us away. Well, here it seems that, again, it's a problem. This is probably 30 or so years after Ezra 9 and 10, and yet it seems as if this sin persists because, verse 3, they have to separate the people again. Sin never sleeps. It is always at work in sinners. And the scripture is abundantly clear that that's us. And sin never sleeps. And yet what exposes it and what corrects it here in chapter 13 is what exposes it and corrects it in us. What are they reading? The book of Moses. They're reading the law of God. They're reading God's very word. As long as sin persists, the word is going to be needed to expose us, to correct us, to train us, to give us all we need for life and godliness. To have holiness and set-apartness, that's necessary, and for that to happen, we need the Word. And so as we end 13.3, that's the kind of people God wants, a holy people, a people set aside, a people that are unto Him only, who are holy and wholly dedicated to Him. Their walls, themselves, all the way down into their hearts. And Scripture repeatedly shows that where this is true, there may be pain, there may be some temporary exile, but there is joy that God gives. Dedications have cake. God wants that to happen. He wants us to have joy in the midst of us giving ourselves and everything around us wholly unto Him. And so the question is, what are you dedicated to? What's your life all about? What do you live for? Maybe you should walk the walls of your life and take a look. What is written on them? What are they all about? If they are for anything but God, we know that ultimately they will crumble. But if we're all for God and all for His glory, there's cake too. There's joy now and joy eternal because God is faithful to always keep His own. Let's pray to Him together. God, thank you for holding up the mirror of your word to us today and letting us see who you are and your faithfulness to your people, even when we are faithless, you are faithful to us. And I don't understand that. I don't treat people that way. I treat people the way they treat me when I'm done or, or when they're done with me, I'm done with them. Uh, you are better than this. You're better than us, God, so much so. Thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that we would examine our hearts today and that your Holy Spirit would help us do that and show us areas of our lives where we are not holy people. And we pray that you would do that even now, Lord, that you would expose us, the areas in our lives where they do not match your desires for us or your commands to us at all. Show us where we're unholy. Father, you've also called us to be a thankful people. And we probably do look at our lives as um, all of the things that are wrong. And even when we pray to you, we have a long list of things that are broken in us 
and broken in the world, and you want us to bring our requests and our petitions. You want us to hate the sin in us and the sin in the world, and you, you, you want us to ask for those things. But God, uh, I know I pray a lot more that way than I do prayers of thanksgiving, Lord. So uh, in these few moments and, and for the rest of the day, will you show us, show us the things that you do for us that we take for granted. Show us uh, the things that you've accomplished in our lives that are from you. Like Pastor Dylan said, if we are intentionally looking for uh, things that we can be thankful for, that will lead to joy, Lord. And so I pray that you would raise us up above our circumstances, that we would see beyond just the current situation that we're in and the things that are facing us that are difficult and that we don't like. We don't want to bypass those, but hard things in our lives does not change the fact that you have done so much for us and that we don't even have to be afraid of death because we know you will raise us from the grave and give us new bodies and we will live forever whether we are eaten by cannibals or worms or cancer or all of the other things that could destroy our bodies lord we know that we have hope for a sure and glorious future with you, Lord. And that is not because of anything that we have done, not because of our faithfulness, but because of your faithfulness and your promise that if we turn from our sin and put our trust in you, Jesus, and what you have done for us on the cross, that all of our sins are forgiven and that your Holy Spirit will come and live within us and that you will complete the work that you start in us. You won't leave us. You won't forsake us. You will make us holy. You will make us joyful. You will make us thankful. And so, Lord, we ask you to do what you promised to do. We ask you to keep your promises. You are worthy of all of our lives, all of our thoughts. You're worthy of our tithes and our offerings and our time and our deepest desires, Lord. Where our hearts are impure, purify them, Lord. Thank you for loving us, faithless as we are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.